Well, welcome. Um, my name is Andrew Wong, and uh, this is not Youth Sunday. Um, I am a member of the Marriage Enrichment Community Group. Um, new, and a newlywed. Legally married. The state of Texas recognizes that. Um, and for those of you who weren't here last week, um, we started a series through the letter of Galatians, uh, which is a letter that Paul wrote um, to early church communities in Turkey. Um, and I just want to echo something that, uh, that Clara invited us to last week, and that was uh, we're going to be going through this for several months, I think until around December, something like that. Um, and there's really much more to this letter than what we can get to in 30 minutes each Sunday. Um, so I want to invite you to study through this with us. Um, I know studying scripture can be a challenging thing because it requires kind of focus, silence to some extent, application, things like that. Um, but I think that there's so much more um, in this for us than what we can do this morning. And um, I think it will just be richer for you even on Sunday mornings. And if you have any questions about how to do that, um, the teaching team is using some really great resources um, just to prepare. So I think those would be available to you as well. Um, you know, last week, Clara talked a lot about the gospel, and I think this week it'll be more of the same in a sense, but also something different. Um, I think the one question that really frames this text, and, um, and really in everything that Paul is saying, this question is being answered. And that question is this. How can the Galatians trust that the gospel Paul taught them is true gospel? I think throughout entire verses 11 through 24 and even beyond that, this is the question Paul is trying to answer. And for us um, in the 21st century, not the first century, our question is, how can we know that the gospel we believe and base our lives upon is also true? Um, I think Paul answers this question in three main parts, and that's what we're going to explore today. Um, The first part is that the gospel is true because it comes from God through Jesus. The second part of that answer is that the gospel is true because it depends upon God acting for us in Jesus. And thirdly, the gospel is true because it transforms us to be like Jesus. It transforms us into the likeness of Jesus. Let me go ahead and pray for us now. Dad, I thank you um, for bringing us here today. Um, God, I thank you for uh, the new folks that are joining us today. And God, I thank you that um, 2,000 years ago, a letter was written to a group of people, um, a group of people that were becoming a community, that were becoming a family. Um, And God, this letter was to the Galatians, encouraging them um, to not lose sight of what they knew was true, um, but to live into the freedom that was theirs. And so, God, today I pray that you would open this scripture. I pray that you'd open our hearts to it. God, I pray that today where comfort needs to be spoken, God, you would use your word to speak comfort for people. God, where encouragement needs to be spoken, people would be encouraged. And God, where freedom and liberation needs to be heard, um, that that would happen, God. So, Lord God, I pray that in all the ways... um, that, yeah, this message is insufficient, that your Holy Spirit would come and just flood into this place. God, that you would reveal yourself here. And we just pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let me go ahead and read our text for today. It's Galatians 1, 11 through 24. I'm using the, uh, the newer New International Version. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin, 
I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, beyond many of my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Um, before we really get to the question, how can the Galatians trust that the gospel Paul taught is the true gospel, or the implicated question for us, how can we trust that the gospel we're basing our lives upon is true? We need some background. Um, once again, Paul is writing this letter to Greek believers in central south uh, Turkey, in the region of Galatia. Um, Paul had previously traveled to Galatia, and he had helped build a community of believers by sharing the gospel um, with pagan Greeks. Um, but what was the message of the gospel that Paul proclaimed to the Galatians? Right, when I said that Paul proclaimed the gospel, I think for many of us, something popped into our mind. But what was the gospel that Paul actually shared with the Greeks? Go to the next slide. It's a little hard to see, but this is a quote from N.T. Wright. He's a preeminent New Testament scholar, and he studied, he spent his life pretty much studying Pauline literature. So studying what Paul did, um, the culture and history that he worked in. And N.T. Wright describes the gospel of Paul this way. According to Paul, there is one God, the world's creator. And this one God has now unveiled his long-awaited plan for the world. The unveiling took place in a Jew called Jesus. Paul says that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, a sort of king to end all kings. Jesus was executed by the Romans. That's what they did often enough to other people's kings. But Paul says that the true God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the beginning of the good news, but it does not stop there. According to Paul, Jesus' death and resurrection mean that this God is now building a new family, a single family, a family with no division, no separate races, no one table for Jews and another for Gentiles nonsense. Paul argues God would have to have just one family. The remarkable thing is that because of Jesus, you don't have to be a Jew to belong to that family. The God of Israel wants to be known as father by the whole world. Notice um, that in that description of the gospel, um, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus was talked about, but there wasn't a whole lot of talk about accepting Jesus into your heart. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about um, kind of confessing your sins necessarily. I think all of that is inherent to the gospel. All of that is within the story of Jesus, but the gospel as the first century Christians understood it, the gospel that Paul taught to the Galatians was the very story of Jesus, the story of Jesus fulfilling the plan of God. And it goes far beyond this personal decision. Um, 
one of the main things I want to get at here is that if the gospel is simply um, receiving forgiveness for our personal sins so that we can know for sure where we're going when we die, the gospel has nothing to say about Jews and Gentiles becoming brothers and sisters. It has, n- it has nothing to say about that. It has no authority. That is extraneous. It has nothing to say about racial injustice or poverty. It has nothing to say about brokenness. It has nothing to say about um, really most things. It just has to say about where I'm going when I die. Um, but that's not the gospel of the first century. That's not the gospel Paul taught the Galatians. Um, other background. Paul is speaking to a community of old friends throughout this letter. Um, in other parts of the letter, we find out that when Paul visited the Galatians, he grew ill. He became sick, and they nursed him back to health. And he has this tone of familiarity with them, um, a friend reassuring them, a friend really challenging them as only a friend could, I think, throughout this letter. But that brings us to another question. If Paul is such a trusted friend of the Galatians, why are they asking if the gospel he proclaimed to them is true? If he's such a trusted friend, why is his message coming into question? And if they've already become believers, why are they asking such a fundamental question, what is the gospel after the fact? As Paul recounts for the Galatians throughout the letter, they did hear and respond to the gospel already. Indeed, he says they were running the race of faith with him. But after Paul left, some Jewish believers, who he calls agitators, came among the Galatians and told them that they had heard wrong. It turns out that God wasn't making just one great family out of all the people in the world. He had just one family, the people of Israel, but that he was open to others joining if they would just leave their former culture and become Jewish. Jesus was still saving people. He was still the Messiah. He had still been crucified, resurrected, and ascended, but he was saving Jewish people. Um, This was not controversial for the first century. Um, Saying that you have to give up your culture, that you have to change dramatically to um, be recognized by God, to be accepted by God, was not controversial. Um, In the first century, religious expression was always cultural, right? So very rarely would people say, well, I was born um, in Lystra and I worship the gods of Lystra, but then, you know, when I went to college, I converted. and right? that, that, re- that didn't really happen in the first century. And in most parts of the world today, it still doesn't happen. Um, religion, culture, family, these things are intrinsic. They're a part of one another. And in the first century, this was true. So if you were born in Lystra, you probably worshipped the patron deity of that city. Um, if you were born in Damascus, you probably worshipped the patron deity of that city. If you were a silversmith in a city, as we're told in Acts, you probably had a specific deity that kind of blessed and benefacted your work. Um, So the idea that you had to be something to be accepted by a God was nothing new. But the gospel that Paul taught was. And now the Galatians were faced with hard questions. Was Paul telling us the truth? Does Does God want to accept us as we are? Or do we need to change before we can join God's family? How can we know who is telling us the truth? Paul begins this section by affirming, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. This brings us to our first answer. The gospel is true because it comes from God through Jesus.
Paul wanted to declare that his message wasn't something he had concocted, nor was it something he had heard from someone else and altered to come up with all this freedom that the Galatians were offered. What Paul had shared was not too good to be true. It was the very intention and heart of Jesus, the one who the message centers upon. Paul was not distorting God's message. God's message was just radical. Paul wasn't making it easy for the Galatians. God is just hospitable. And this is just the point, that a gospel of human origin is not hospitable. A gospel of human origin is always shaping people into our image, making people more like us, because we have it figured out. Today we are also faced with competing gospels, just as believers in the first century were. Um, They also rest upon the notion that the story of Jesus might be true. Um, Maybe he was born a virgin. Maybe he did live a good life. Maybe he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended but it doesn't change things all that much. See, we must contend with a gospel that is only concerned with personal salvation and whether or not we will go to heaven when we die. This gospel quiets suffering and struggle around us with the easy moniker, oh, don't worry, we won't have to worry about that in heaven. It leaves us holed up in churches as if God is not concerned with his creation that groans awaiting restoration. This is the gospel of self-preservation. It denies the costliness of Jesus' love for us. On the other hand, we must contend with a gospel that requires we have enough faith to be blessed, um, that we have enough holiness to be changed, and enough value to be loved. This gospel demands we must scrutinize whether we know the right things and exhibit the right behavior. This is the gospel of self-denigration. This message denies the generosity of Jesus' love for us. Like the competing gospel offered in the first century, This gospel is preoccupied with what we need to do to get in line with God, to catch up to him, to appease him. It leaves us wondering at best if we have measured up and at worst judging others by the same artificial standard. I don't mean to say that the gospel of Jesus has nothing to say about heaven, although I think we probably need to biblically reevaluate what we think of heaven. Indeed, the gospel tells us that the story of Jesus is a story of dying for the sins of the world, of Jesus liberating, ransoming, redeeming, and adopting. The gospel ends in consummation and God being with people forever. So absolutely, the gospel talks about heaven. And I don't mean to say that the gospel of Jesus has nothing to say about sanctification and becoming new creations, so that we just trudge along until glory comes. The gospel speaks of new life and new power to become who God would have us be. And yet, we need to ask ourselves soberly, And honestly, if like the Galatians, we have been receiving false messages as the true gospel. Have we tried to live by the maxim, you can be accepted by God just as soon as you do blank? As the church, we are the continued presence of God in this world. We are the continued incarnation of Christ among our neighbors. And so we need to really honestly ask, If we've been telling people, however subtly, that what they need to do in order to be accepted by God is to become more like us, more blank, more like us. This is not the message of God through Jesus. Um, I grew up in the church. Uh, Maybe some of you did too. And I was told this marvelous thing. I was told by Sunday school teachers and my parents, you don't need to do anything to be accepted and loved by God. Um, But Jesus died for you. And if you believe in him, you can be with him. That's a marvelous thing. Um, 
But, you know, most of the people at my church look the same and they talk the same. They did, they did the same activities and liked the same politicians. They didn't want their kids to hang out with the same kind of other kids. As I grew older, I began to notice that people who didn't know the same information or act the same way as most people at the church didn't come to our church. Or maybe they did and they just didn't stay long enough to be noticed. And today I wonder where all those people that just didn't fit in go to church. Where they worship God and experience his people accepting and loving and sharing with one another. I wonder if those people that didn't fit in have that at all. And it's funny, I've been going through Freedom in Christ here at church for the last few weeks, which is, uh, it's a healing ministry that basically helps um, unravel broken things in our lives and, and receive Jesus' healing for those. And, um, and I've known kind of the dissonance and the anger I have towards church exclusivity for some time. I've felt that, and I've recognized that. But last week when we were going through Freedom in Christ, I discovered just how much anger and judgment I have towards the church because of this exclusivity. And the sad irony is that in my pain and disappointment towards the church for being exclusive, I have in turn become exclusive. I am judging people for judging people. Right? Didn't your mom ever say two rights don't make a wrong? But I am judging people for judging people, and the end result seems the same. I wonder who is not receiving the love of God because of my exclusivity. I wonder who is not receiving the love of God because of my standards. Paul's gospel was different. He was convinced that the gospel of Jesus, the gospel he taught, was truly the story of Jesus fulfilling God's plan. And in fulfilling God's plan, tearing down dividing walls that once separated people in his very body through the crucifixion. And Paul was certain that in Jesus' resurrection, all people could live a new life, reconciled across lines of race, class, and gender. How could Paul believe such a radical claim? That claim is still radical today. Um, as, as I've been reading the news about what's going on in Egypt and Syria, and I'm thinking about the kind of sectarian violence that's happening in Syria, between a minority that's kind of controlling the population. I think about the conflict between a lot of Egyptians and the Muslim Brotherhood. And the gospel says that there's a possible way to have peace, that Jesus, that he brings peace, that he brings reconciliation. When I think about the African-American community in the U.S. um, in the wake of the Trayvon Martin verdict, and I was talking to a friend who's black um, after the verdict came out, and he just said, I'm speechless. And for him, it just confirmed something that he's known his whole life, that, that he wasn't safe, that he didn't have the same rights. Whatever you think about that verdict, that's how many African-Americans feel in this country. What a radical claim to believe that across racial lines that we can be reunited, that we can call people that once were enemies friends. And it's only by the unveiling of God's love and power in Jesus that Paul made this radical claim. This brings us to our second point, that the gospel is true because it depends upon God acting for us in Jesus. It depends upon God acting for our world in Jesus. Paul reminds the Greek believers of his story. Uh, He brings us to his own story to answer this question. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. 
I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. The previous way of life for Paul was defined by intense persecution of the church to the point of trying to destroy it, advancing in Judaism above his peers, and extreme zeal for the traditions of his fathers. In all of these descriptions of his former life, Paul makes it clear that it was just that, his very own former life, where he was the center. In this part of his testimony, Paul is always the subject. Grammatically, my previous life, I persecuted, I was advancing, I was extremely zealous. Paul moved and other people had to move for him. And Paul's an interesting character. um, And the fact that he goes into his story with the Galatians is interesting to me. Um, He doesn't, it's not super exhaustive. And I think part of the reason why is that while Paul was with the Galatians, right? Because he says this, you've heard of my previous life. I think he shared about his previous life with them. I think they knew who he was. I think they knew where he had been. So it's not super exhaustive, but we can thresh it out. Paul became an extraordinary figure in the early church, but I think it's, it's even more remarkable to think about who he once was. Paul was a young man of tremendous promise for his community. As he describes elsewhere, he was from the Jewish tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews who studied under the renowned rabbi Jamalil in the intellectual and cultural capital of Judaism in Jerusalem. As um, Eugene Peterson once wrote, um, great pedigree, good education about Paul. Great pedigree, good education. Paul added to this fine start a personal passion and conviction for the religious life um, and the role of protecting and preserving his community's culture. When Paul says that he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers, he's actually saying that he was a Pharisee. He belonged to the Pharisaical school of religious teaching. So he had memorized the Pentateuch, right, the, the law of Moses. Um, he had followed around other rabbis, learning their insights thoroughly. He had shown promise from boyhood. That's how he had been able to do that. Such gifting and passion made Paul a rising star in the Jewish community. If Paul were in the tech industry today, he would be called a whiz kid at this point, right? He's on Wired Magazine, um, young, drops out of Stanford to move to Silicon Valley and do something big. If he were in the investment world, he would have made his first cool million young, um, but he would have kept working just because he was good at it. But Paul's business uh, was religion. And as Eugene Peterson has also written, religion for Paul was a matter of doing things and making things happen. Doing things and making things happen. So there's no aspect of God in there and there's no aspect of other people. Just doing things and making things happen. The same confidence and control led Paul to unflinching cruelty towards those he viewed as backwards, foolish, and theologically wrong. He persecuted boldly in the name of God while not not really knowing God beyond theological discussions and traditions. He understood the Yahweh of the scriptures who vindicated Israel over their enemies, who judged the wicked, but he did not understand the Yahweh whose love and mercy was for foreigners and Gentiles. Paul's message was about acting for himself in the name of God. After reminding his friends about his past, Paul's testimony shifts. He says, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, 
my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. In contrast to his previous life where Paul was the subject, Paul has now described God as the creator and sustainer of his new life. As one commentator noted, God moves and Paul is moved. It was God who set Paul apart, God who called him by grace, God who revealed Jesus in Paul. And in the most marvelous ways, God's pursuit of Paul throws his former life upside down. God is acting for him through Jesus. We're told that from the womb, Paul was set apart by God both to know God and to help others know God. Paul sees himself like the prophet Jeremiah, not an accident, but also not a self-made man. Somebody God had chosen to freely use, not because he had earned it, not because he had earned the privilege. God called Paul by grace, inviting him into a relationship um, that was made possible by God's power and not by Paul's ability or pedigree. And God gave Paul a new vocation to reveal this same generous and good God to those he would have originally found undeserving and insignificant, Gentiles, people that would have always been outside of his circle of value. God decided to do all of this by revealing Jesus in Paul. That is, by transforming Paul from the person he was into the very likeness of Jesus, the one he was persecuting. And I want to note here that what happened to Paul Um, was not a change of mind. It was not an addition of perspective. God didn't just give Paul new information and then Paul took it and put it back together again and he was different. That's not how you go from being a murderer who's at the center of his own world to serving the people that you once hated. That's not how that works. Instead, Jesus had to be revealed in Paul. Paul had to be transformed. You can go on to the next slide. There's um, actually a quote that should be in there somewhere, but I'll just read it to you. That's okay. There he goes. And I think that Alistair McGrath really gets at this well. Alistair McGrath is uh, he's an Irish theologian, and he's an Anglican priest. Uh, he became an atheist um, at 16. He lived in Northern Ireland, and he decided that the violence between Catholics and Protestants there, uh, he decided that the world would just be a much better place if religion was done away with. Um, But when he went to Oxford to read chemistry for his undergraduate studies, something began to happen. And he says it this way. He says, I discovered not simply that Christianity was true, but also that it was real. It was not just something that made sense, but also something that could transform someone's life. I decided I wanted to become a Christian. And so for Paul and for Alistair, something happened they realized that the events of Jesus' life were true. They realized that Jesus really had done what he said he came to do. They realized that, uh, in the case of Paul, that the Christians weren't just crazy, but that Jesus really was the Messiah. But there was something more than just the truth of it. There was the reality of it. They realized that there was power in that. When God revealed Jesus to Paul, something happened in him. There was something fundamental about him that was shaken. And this is our third point. The gospel is true because it transforms us to become like Jesus. Paul recounts what happens. He says, 
My immediate response after God revealed himself to me was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. It's so interesting because Paul was a religious scholar. He had sat under rabbis and he had learned their interpretations about this text and that one. As a Pharisee, he had memorized and devoted himself to many additional laws and guidelines that governed his life. But when God revealed Jesus to Paul, he didn't go to Jerusalem to study theology again with a new perspective. And he didn't um, follow the apostles around who had known Jesus best, asking for their interpretation about this issue or that issue. Paul assures us that none of this happened, so other teachers or study couldn't have been the source of his gospel. That was not the origin of his gospel. After a life spent learning the right answers and insights about God from other people, Paul wanted to know God for himself, I think. Paul wanted to know who he was himself, personally. So instead, he went to Arabia. And that's kind of why there's the sand dunes and stuff like that in the PowerPoint. I don't know if that's what Arabia looked like, the part he was in, but Paul doesn't explicitly say what happened to him those three years in Arabia. It's kind of cryptic. But his journey into the wilderness seems so strongly related to the experiences of other people that God met in Scripture. Moses, the man God called to deliver Israel from slavery, was found tending sheep in the wilderness of Midian. Moses wasn't there by chance. He was running from a conflicted and violent past where he had murdered a man. Elijah, a prophet who was also very zealous, much like Paul, I think, wound up in Arabia when he had done all the right things for God, and all he had to show for it were threats to his life and loneliness. Israel, as a whole community, is described as corporately being sent into the wilderness after generations of sin and idolatry. Throughout scripture, God's meeting people in the wilderness is not simply about finding a quiet place to talk. Although I suspect that um, the solitude, it does have something to do with it. Instead, the wilderness offers people the opportunity to meet God anew, um, to begin a relationship with him. The wilderness is a place where God gives people new identities. Where escaped murderers like Moses become liberators where burnt-out prophets like Elijah hear the voice of God again, and where advancing and zealous persecutors um, can come to know the love of the very God they were persecuting. I believe that this is what happened to Paul. And preparing this message has been pretty challenging for that specific reason, personally. Um, I feel like I'm in the midst of Arabia right now, um, I wonder if Paul or Elijah ever um, ever sat in the wilderness asking how they came to be here when they thought they were doing exactly what God wanted. I, I began to really follow Jesus in college, right? Not like the people in Lystra who never did that. I actually did that. I began to follow Jesus in college. Um, and powerful experiences quickly followed my decision to follow Jesus. So I saw people come to faith. I was able to witness to some of my professors I spent a summer living internationally with a ministry. 
I felt like I had the Christian life, not figured out, but I felt like I was immersed in it. I felt like I was doing it, like I was good at it. Everything made sense and was pretty fruitful. Um, I was good at ministry and truly loved it. I, I wasn't doing it out of obligation. I enjoyed doing it and I was good at it. And while my sole focus wasn't on it, I felt like a whiz kid too, I think. People told me that too. And ministries asked me to apply for staff. All of it just confirmed I was in the right place at the right time. Um, but in the spring of my junior year, something kind of strange happened. I'm not from like a charismatic tradition, so God talking mostly happens just through the Bible. Um, but one morning, um, I woke up and God asked me the question, would you go to tech? And I knew that he meant Texas Tech. I'm from Maryland originally. All I knew about Texas Tech was it was in the middle of nowhere and they had a football team. Um, I was studying it. What's that? That's all there is to it. Uh, and uh, I, I was studying at Trinity here in San Antonio, so a very different type of school. Um, after lots of prayer and wrestling, I felt like God was indeed calling me to tech, and so I applied for transfer. Um, and in the fall, I moved to tech not really knowing anyone. Um, I got involved with a campus ministry there, but the ministry kind of floundered all year long. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of fruit. Um, it just kind of trudged along. Um, and after a seemingly uneventful and unfruitful year, I graduated college and moved back to San Antonio. That's what happened to my prophetic call. Um, I returned to San Antonio unsure as to why I had left my closest friends in the most exciting season of my life for something that seemed so empty and lonely. Um, since coming back to San Antonio, I've gotten jobs and worked. Um, and yet, um, and the college days are long gone, but I still sometimes, a lot of the time I think, I miss the excitement and the fruitfulness of that season of my life. And so I wonder and pray, God, what are you doing in my life? God, what are you doing in me? God, why did you take that from me? Um, and it's painful, and it's confusing. And, um, and good things have happened, too. You know, I got married this summer, and, you know, <laughs> wonderful things have happened, too. But still, I, I wonder if any of you can identify with that, with just that pervasive sense of what's not right. What's not right? Um, in the last several months, I started meeting with a spiritual formation group here at church. Um, for those of you who don't know what spiritual formation is, it's just a fancy word for discipleship. It's learning how to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. It's participating with God and what he's doing in us. Um, and um, at first, I thought it was, it was pretty straightforward, simple stuff. I thought I had re read about it somewhere. I thought I had done it somewhere at like a conference or something. Um, but slowly, God has been revealing to me that while I know lots of things about him, even lots of true things, I don't really know him. Honest confession, I'm teaching you up here. Um, I think I know more about God than I know him personally. I think I could tell you more about God than I could tell you what he's saying to me sometimes. Um, and God's been telling me that um, even though I love doing ministry and I'm gifted in it, I don't love to simply be with him because I don't yet trust him and love him fully. 
You know, and I've heard it said that God cares more about who we are becoming than about what we'll do for him. I actually, periodically, somebody will tell me that, and I kind of hate hearing that, but it's so true. And yet, I've realized that for my own life, I'm so much more comfortable doing something for God and showing him, look, this is what I've done for you. This is our relationship. Can't you see what I've offered you? I'm so much more comfortable with that than with being with him. Um, I heard a pastor once ask the question, when's the last time you just wasted time with God? I don't waste time with God that much. Productivity is the name of the game. Um, Perhaps you are in Arabia right now, too. Maybe it's a hard place full of doubts and painful memories, or maybe it's just confusing and disconcerting, and you're not sure what brought you here, what's going to come of it. But I think it's worth saying that there are worse places to be than Arabia. I think it's worth saying that while it might be unpleasant and even painful to meet with God in the wilderness, that um, it is in this place of barrenness that we can receive everything we truly need from Jesus. Because it is Jesus himself who draws us here to renew his relationship with us. When it seems as if there is nothing there, God can be found setting us apart, calling us by his grace, revealing Jesus within us. And maybe it's not this, like me, maybe it's not this prolonged thing for years you've been wondering about who you're becoming and what's going on in your life. Maybe you just have, you know, this thing in the bushes. You're not sure what it is, but you're just not who you want to be. You're just not where you want to be. You're not sure where God is. You haven't heard him. Maybe you're in Arabia now too. But in that barrenness, I think God is doing something. Something is going to well up. After returning from Arabia, Paul tells the Galatians, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Paul was an apostle commissioned by Jesus, and yet he didn't return to the heart of the Christian movement. He didn't return to be with the apostles in Jerusalem to minister and preach to Jewish people. Instead, he went to Syria and Cilicia. He went to the Gentiles when he had returned from Arabia. Once the pride of his community, the churches in Judea didn't even know his name. They only heard the stories about a man who formerly persecuted believers, now proclaiming the very faith he tried to ruin and inviting people to join the very family he tried to destroy. Indeed, the gospel Paul preached had the power to change people into the likeness of Jesus. It had the power to change him into the likeness of Jesus. This is how the Galatians can know. This is how we can know. Are we becoming in the likeness of Jesus? Or are we trying to build ourselves into something else? The gospel was not simply true, but it was real. And this real living gospel, a gospel about a resurrected and living king who will return someday to make this world right under his rule, is available to us today. We're going to um, do communion as a part of our response today to this message. And as you're doing communion, I want you to understand that this is a sacrament. Maybe you're not from that tradition, neither am I. A sacrament just means it's an invisible reality that's demonstrated with something tangible. And so in Jesus, we've been invited, Jews and Gentiles, friends and enemies, the self-righteous and sinners, we've been invited to Jesus' table to come and have a meal 
because we're his family. We've been invited into family with him. Um, And so as you come forward to partake in that, I want you to understand that this is not bread and wine, but that this is reconciliation with God and with one another. That um, That this is the gospel. So Kevin and Cindy, would you please come forward? An open communion. If you're someone here today who tries to follow Jesus, then you're welcome to share in the meal together. And what we're going to do today is a little different than uh, Sundays. That mix it up, right? Because I, you know, I think about communion as something I've done repeatedly in my life, and it's like, how do you get something new out of communion? And so it's a little bit different, and the idea is maybe to be a little bit, I won't say jarring, but just different enough that it'll, it'll cause you to experience communion in a different way. So what we're going to do is we're going to have everyone come forward. You're going to grab a piece of bread, as you do, and then we're all just going to gather here around this table, and uh, we'll do some things together once everybody's got a piece of bread in their hand. Okay? So the Apostle Paul explains communion in 1 Corinthians 11 this way. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul begins this instruction. The first thing he says is, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. Remember how Paul encountered Jesus. He was on that road to Damascus. He was in full fury persecuting the church when Jesus stopped him in his tracks. And Andrew spoke about the three years that Paul spent in Arabia after this encounter with Jesus. And in Galatians 1, the the scriptures that Andrew just read to us, he said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was it taught. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul's passing on to us what he received from the Lord by way of revelation. We take communion together this morning as an act of remembering. Remembering his body and the new covenant in his blood. And it's an act of proclaiming. Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Now as we're all here, gathered together around this table with the bread and the cup, I'm going to ask you to do a little imagining. Picture all of us together right now standing in the presence of Jesus standing before him, seated on the throne at God's right hand. He is the risen, exalted, victorious Lord of all. He's surrounded by the angelic host of heaven. Now far off to the side is the evil one, and with him all the forces of darkness who oppose who Jesus is 
and what he has done to rescue people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and life. And this is the part that's a little bit different. If you feel comfortable, I want you to repeat after me a proclamation. We remember you, Jesus, this morning. We remember your body given for us on the cross of Calvary. We remember your blood poured out on that cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we rejoice in the new covenant we have with you. Before all of heaven, we proclaim your death on the cross. And we await your return when we will be united with you and your great family. We share this meal together in unity. For before you there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. All right, just come forward and dip the bread into the cup, eat it, and then you can return to your seat.
team, would you continue uh, to play your closing song during our personal prayer time? Um, and will our community group pastors and prayer team uh, take their positions by the cross over there? Friends, this morning Jesus is inviting us to know him. If you haven't decided to follow Jesus, um, I want to tell you that he is calling you by his grace, that he has set you apart, that he wants to reveal himself in you, that he wants you to be a part of his new family that he's making. And so if you haven't done that already, um, all of these folks will be great people to talk to and pray with about that. If you're in the wilderness right now and you're wrestling with God, what that might mean, or if you realize this morning that Jesus is true to you, but he is not real to you, whatever it might be, please receive some prayer if you want that. If you have a burden that you've been carrying right now or physical pain, um, if you just want to give thanks and just pray with someone, um, that is available to you. Um, And I will go ahead and I'll pray a benediction for us. And if you don't want to receive prayer, you're dismissed. And uh, once the band is done playing their last song, this portion of the service is over and you can pick up your children from the nursery or the Sunday school. Um, I'll be out by the door if you have any questions or you want to talk. Suddenly go ahead and pray for us. Lord Jesus, reconciler of all people, I pray that you would tear down every dividing wall among us, that we might be reunited with others, and Lord God, that we might be reunited with you. Lord God, would you call us by your grace? God, would you set us apart? Lord God, would you reveal yourself in us? We pray this all by your power, by your authority, by your love. Amen.